right, welcome back to Beating the Odds, the podcast that focuses on recent happenings in the world of sports, along with wagering tips, sports gambling, and as always, fantasy football. Today, I am joined by two fantastic hosts. Uh, Sean, my right-hand man, is here, and Tim has come back to join us again in the studio. Thanks, guys. What's up? What's going on? Had a little break here after the Super Bowl. Back in here, grinding it out, getting ready for uh, some of the new stuff we have coming. Uh, a little touch-up on what we've left out on the last couple weeks, and looking forward to it. Hey, just come back. We're going to start doing our poker, so we're just going to want to tell you guys that we've been, well, I've been doing fairly good in poker lately. I, this past weekend, I ended up winning about 500 net profit from some poker tournaments, and then on the Super Bowl, we actually played in a poker tournament during the Super Bowl, and Sean and I actually cashed on both of that. We chopped there, so it was a good time. What's up, Bushy? Excellent. That sounds great, man. I'm glad to see that you guys are doing well, and I think the listeners will definitely behooved to listen and, and get all the knowledge from you guys that they can. Uh, basically, starting off from the brand new player that's you know never played before to the more advanced players where there's strategy involved in odds and outs and all the other stuff that you have to calculate while you're playing the game. Um, for the last couple of weeks, been pretty, pretty boring, I guess, <laughs> around here. Uh, I haven't done much wagering at all. Uh, I do want to congratulate, obviously, the 2020 champion uh, Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, I thought the Super Bowl was pretty solid. It was a good game. Um, I was glad to uh, see Andy Reid, uh, you know, win his first Super Bowl trophy. So that's very cool. Um, what, uh, what's been going on with you, Sean? Just watching sports, uh, lost my last future bet on the, the 49ers. It was a good Super Bowl, I think, overall. Uh, playing poker, the usual. Um, yeah, not much other than that. Have you been, uh, doing any, like, wagering on any other sports, so to speak, or have you been kind of laying low? Uh, laying low, kind of feeling out NHL every once in a while, uh, kind of like the avalanche tonight, minus one and a half. We'll see what happens. All right. That sounds great. And again, congratulations to, to you, Tim. Sounds like you've been on a little hot streak here. I can't wait to hear about it when we get into the poker portion of the show. Uh, real quick, what I'm going to lead off with here is just uh, a quick little thing where I'm going to throw out uh, most of the uh, NHL, what I would call like the major free agent signings. Um, there was too many to write them all down, but these are probably players that you've heard of or have some interest in. There are some fantasy hockey players out there, so I don't know if this influences you one way or the other. Probably not when teams trade, but uh, so we had uh, Brady Shea. He went from the Rangers to the Carolina Panthers, excuse me, the Carolina Hurricanes. Wrong sport. Uh, Robert Robin Leonard from Chicago to Vegas. I thought that that was kind of an odd one just because, if I'm not mistaken, Chicago just signed him in the offseason to a long-term deal. So that was strange that they were willing to let him go. Uh, Sammy Vatnin from the Devils again to the Hurricanes. So the Carolina Hurricanes are really trying to make a – a big push here to, to repeat it, looks like. Uh, Eric Gustafson from Chicago. Uh, the Blackhawks have unofficially said that they're back in the rebuilding time, I guess. Going into tank mode. Right. Um, Tyler Enos from Ottawa to Edmonton. Edmonton, I saw a lot of activity from. Connor Sheary returns back to Pittsburgh. So he's pretty lucky. He gets to go back and team up with Sydney and Malkin and them. He got traded from Buffalo back to Pittsburgh. Yeah, that'll be a good addition there. Always uh, good to go to a championship-winning team. Absolutely. Uh, Andreas Offnasau, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that last name right, but I know that he was a pretty key player for the Red Wings. He got moved to Edmonton, so it looks like they're trying to get uh, Connor McDavid some, some support up there and bring a, a winning tradition back to Edmonton. That's nice to see. Wayne Simmons, uh, he's kind of fallen off uh, the last couple of years. I loved him when he played in Philadelphia, but he got traded uh, from 
the Devils back to Buffalo. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, Patrick Marlowe, been in the league a long time. Good goal scorer. Uh, he gets uh, sent from the Sharks back over to the Penguins. Uh, and that, of course, is another big addition for Pittsburgh. So they're going to be pretty tough uh, in the division that I, you know, my favorite team plays in the Capitals. So that's that's going to be a pretty tough one. Uh, Vincent Trocek from the Panthers to the Hurricanes. Jean-Gabriel Peugeot from Ottawa to the Islanders. I know that my son called me up after that trade. He was happy for that. He's a big Islanders fan. Mike Green, who used to be one of my favorite players on the Capitals. He's been in Detroit now for probably near 10 years. He got traded from the Red Wings to the Oilers. Um, so it looks like, from what I'm gathering, it looks like Chicago, Detroit, the Sharks, they all have entered that rebuilding mode. And the Carolina Hurricanes, the Penguins, the Oilers, and the Islanders are trying to put those final pieces of the puzzle. Uh, as a Capitals fan, I was really happy uh, with the Brendan Dillon signing from San Jose. That's been my biggest gripe this whole season is the defense. They've got some young players, but other than John Carlson, it's day-to-day. -day. Like, uh, Gudis has not played well. I don't feel um, some really bad errors. I love Dmitry Orloff, but again, he makes a lot of mental mistakes when trying to get the puck out of the zone. And Jensen, I think, is uh, at times a bad liability back there. So hopefully with the addition of Dylan, and then we also got Ilya Kovalchuk. He went from Montreal. Another older Russian player, but hopefully he will uh, really push Ovechkin to help to try to get a fellow Russian another Stanley Cup. Uh, I know Kovalchuk's never been on a Stanley Cup winning team, so that'd be nice. And then finally, I have Tyler Toffoli from the Kings to the Canucks, and I don't really follow either of those teams. I didn't think Vancouver was doing that well, but maybe they're pushing hard to try to get a, a last wild card spot or something. Any other thoughts on any other players that that you've known that have moved around or that you, you think might be on the horizon to move around? Well, I don't know. My abs did some trades, but they didn't really do as much as I, a lot of people are saying because I know they're they're one of the teams that people don't are sleeping on a little bit. They have, they're have they a good contender. Unfortunately, I don't feel like they did as much as they should have in the, in the trading deadline. But Actually, I picked I picked the Avalanche to, to be one of the teams challenging for the Western Conference title. I, I think that they don't really have to move that many players because they're such a young team. Same thing with the Maple Leafs. Like they've got so much money locked up in this this talent where probably the average player has like three or four or three to four years or less of experience, which I I mean, you know, they've just got some killer players on, on the Avalanche. They got another great player in the offseason from the Capitals, Burakowski. He's a lot more comfortable there, it looks like. Um, just just playing good. Uh, I think the Avalanche are a really strong Western Conference team. Yeah, there was a lot of good pickups in the trade deadline. Uh, the Bruins didn't make that many big moves. Uh, that's my team. But I did like the ones they did get. Uh, they picked up Andres Case for David Bax. And uh, they lost a 2020 first-round draft pick, but they were un they were able to unload David Backus' uh, contract, so they cleared that out. So that'll leave some room for them to hopefully sign uh, Krug. And uh, they just made another trade. Uh, they sent Don Danton Heinen to the Ducks for Nick Ritchie. So those are some decent fill-in spots, and un they were able to unload some some contracts. Yeah, pr and, good, uh, good like third moves. or fourth liners for sure. Yeah. One one move I haven't heard talked about, and this is just me being, you know, a, a diehard hockey fan. I I don't know how you feel. I'd like to hear from a Boston Bruins fan, but I really, you know, I got a soft spot in my heart for Joe Thornton, 
And he's playing there, you know, on a cellar dwelling team, the Sharks. They've just been riddled with injuries. I'd almost like to see if if the Bruins would take him back, you know, just for a one year contract to, to just see if you know, I don't know how it went in Boston if he left there and people were upset or if it was place he wanted to stay and kind of got dealt without him knowing. But I sure would like to see. I, I hate for players as good and committed as him to not finish with their name on the cup. So if I had to pick a place for him to go, I, I think going back to Boston would be pretty sweet. Definitely be an interesting place for him to go. Uh be interesting to see where he fits in there now just because they have so much talent there i know he'd be deeper on the lines but to have him come back in it's just be a little more depth there it's kind of like you know i don't know you're much younger than me but you follow hockey ray bork was a beloved bruin and the avalanche picked him up in like the year when joe sackick and forsberg and all those guys were clicking on all cylinders and they got him a cup and Regardless if it's with the team he did most of his career with or not, he just deserved it, I felt. So it was really nice to see that. And that's kind of the same storybook ending. It'd be nice to see for Joe. And then he could just retire. And no, you know, no doubt he's a Hall of Famer either way, but still would be pretty cool. Um, moving along to NFL, I, I don't have uh, too much stuff. Just some headlines from the past week, and I'll get your guys' input on that. It looks like all the controversy surrounding Joe Burrow and how they were trying to make him out to kind of be like an Eli Manning or a John Elway of sorts where he said he wasn't going to play for a certain team and trying to dictate where he was going to be drafted. He did come out publicly and say, like, hey, I'm an athlete. Football's my love. It's my passion. Um I'm going to be happy just to be in the NFL and whoever drafts me, I'm going to show up and play. So I thought that that was pretty good marketing strategic move, either coming from his camp or from himself. Uh, What do you guys think about Burrow? I mean, he did have an outstanding year, record-breaking year, obviously, uh, for LSU. But uh, the year before, he was kind of hit or miss. You know, he, he wasn't ever talked about as a potential Heisman finalist and stuff like this. So I don't know if he was a good quarterback behind a great team or a great quarterback behind a great team. I tend to feel that, you know, he's he's good, but I don't know if he's as good as what they're saying. Yeah, that kind of goes with just pretty much all draft prospects at this point. You never know until they actually get into the NFL how they're going to pan out, if they work into the system. But him being a competitive player like he is, uh, I think all competitive players want to go to a winning team because when you're competitive and you're just going out there and you lose every week, I can understand that that would probably be pretty rough. But at the same time, you don't really want to announce that to, to look that way. But all the people that have, they haven't really had a bad rap after they've done it. So it's, it's understandable to do, you know, worth a shot. See See what happens. And I don't get into as much of like, all the analytics and numbers like, you know, stat geeks do and stuff. I, I do take a, a little bit away from uh, the combine stuff, like when they're when they're doing measurements, you know, hand size, stuff like that. I think that, that stuff is pretty important. And in Burroughs' case, they said that his hand measured about average, a little smaller than some of the bigger quarterbacks. But the thing that worries me is that, you know, it's going to be Cincinnati. And when you get into the middle of the season, the weather in Cincinnati is not friendly. It's an outdoor stadium. That's the kind of stuff as a GM or an owner that I would really be looking at. Is like, okay, we've got four or five guys out there that are potential first-round picks for quarterback. Um, Do we really want, you know, the guy that's not going to be able to hold on to the ball in like inclement weather or something like that. So yeah, uh, having those smaller hands in the weather and playing against better athletes that know where to hit the player to cause them to fumble. Sure. Yeah, that stuff definitely does uh, come into play, and it can affect the player for sure. All right, moving along. Uh, I did see a quote today, uh, Sean. So this should interest you. Uh, Mike McCarthy says he's all in on Dak Prescott. He 
it looks like uh, he would rather get the deal done sooner rather than later. He was praising Dak, saying that he thinks that this kid's got all the talent to take them to the Super Bowl and win it. Um, he doesn't really know what all the holdup is, but he doesn't really get involved too much with contract negotiations. I have a feeling they're going to franchise tag him uh, just so that they can uh, give themselves more leeway in the negotiation process. But, you know, it looks like for right now that uh, Dak's future is going to remain in, in Dallas, I think. I hope he stays there. Uh to tell you the truth, I honestly haven't been following it much because I've thought of so many different scenarios that started giving me headaches. So now I'm just kind of sitting back and letting it play out how it's going to play out. And I hope he ends up staying a cowboy. Uh, I'm sure he will be franchise tagged uh, due to their money situation there. They can't really afford to dish out the cash right now. So franchise franchise tagging him for, for those years uh, would be better, I think. Tim, I heard a snicker. What's what, what's going through that mind of yours? I was just thinking about our last conversation with when Drew was here about if he'd rather have Dak or Tom Brady in yeah. his team. So I was just yeah. like, I felt like that was the kind of same thing. It's like, yeah, I want Dak, even though it sounds like the Raiders really want Brady right now. Yeah, it looks like that uh, he's kind of, uh, that Tom has kind of uh, narrowed the, the choices down to either Vegas or staying in New England. That's That's what I'm gathering. I mean, I get why the the Raiders would want him in Vegas. It's a big publicity stunt. It would help boost their sales for the new stadium. I just don't get why Brady would want to go there. So yeah, I you know I I don't I don't know specifically either. They do have, um, you know, some weapons there for sure. But uh, again, like comparing their talent base to like the Chargers or or or, or Dallas, even even there, I just don't. Uh, I don't see the Oakland Raiders having uh, that much, you know, tools. Uh, next on my list, Ron Rivera says that he uh, likes Dwayne Haskins, but open to other options. So I don't know how strong a vote of confidence that is for your starting quarterback when your head coach uh, makes that comment. Uh, Matt Rule head coach of the Carolina Panthers. He says uh, he's sticking with Cam Newton. So we'll see how that goes. I, I think, you know, I like Cam Newton. I think he's a good player. I just don't know uh, if his body can hold up for a 16-game season, you know, especially being a running, passing quarterback. Yeah, I think if you're rule and you come in there, you have Cam Newton, who's already kind of proven. I think you kind of just got to ride him out. For now, until you build that team that you want behind him, I don't think Cam Newton's going to be there for the long haul, but I think temporarily he's a good fit for him to get him some wins so he can actually continue to build the the team that he does want. Have you heard anything regarding uh, the Ron Revere or Cam Newton stuff at all, Tim? Or? Well, I haven't heard anything lately. I've just been kind of seeing to see if the Bears decide to go for another quarterback now. Well, you bring up the Bears, and that was going to be my final one, so we'll just move it up. It says the Bears, I read today, are committed to Trubisky through the 2020 season as their starter. So it looks like they're going to be looking elsewhere in the draft, all things being considered, unless obviously like if Bobby Hebert fell into their lap or something like that, you know, why not draft someone like that, give them a year behind Trubisky, let him get reps in practice and see where it goes. Uh, moving on, the Giants, who currently hold the number four pick, uh, their GM was all about announcing, hey, man, we are open to anybody who wants to talk about trading up. So it looks like, you know, they know they've got Saquon. They know they've got Danny Dimes. It's all about trying to fill in the pieces around them and make that team better. I think it'd be cool if they went out and got themselves a, a really good playmaker on the defensive line or possibly, you know, just a high pick as far as a receiver that, uh, you know, one of those game-changer type receivers. And last on my list that uh, the Texans head coach uh, announced that he's going to let all the play calling be done by the offensive coordinator, 
which is probably a smart comment to make after you were up by 26 in the playoffs and lost. <laughs> yeah, I kind of gave that game away. Right, yeah. But before we move along, uh, Tim over here, you know, if anybody saw the uh, simulation I posted in the, the forum page, Brady got uh, simulated in Madden for 2020 on all the different teams, and he went his best record with the Chicago Bears at 13-3 and in Madden. So, But he didn't win the Super Bowl. He lost in the NFC title game. He did win the Super Bowl getting traded to the Eagles, though. Wow. Well, uh, weirder things have happened, but I'm going to stick with facts. Instead oh, and, of... and for Drew out there... He went one in fifteen with the Dolphins. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly what the Dolphins are going. It looks like they're pretty high on that Tua Devialoga, but I man, hip injuries. That's the that's the part that scares me. That that's not like a wrist or a knee or a hip is huge. That's almost as bad as like injuring your throwing shoulder. I would think so. Um. Before we uh, get into the poker uh, section of the podcast, which is going to be a new component of the podcast for everybody listening, um, I'm just going to give just a few little things out there. One, please, uh, if you do listen to the show regularly, um, share it, um, send it via text. However you have to do, just help us spread the word, get the show out there. Um, the more people that listen, the more people that contribute, the better it gets. Yeah. Like I've, I've said before that, you know, we can only do so much and the show really depends on audience participation. People that know about sports or people that want to learn about sports. Um, we're hopefully providing this in a way that appeals to everybody, you know, where your girlfriend can sit there in the car with you and listen and be like, oh, I like the way these guys break this down, or it's very casual, or whatever, that we're not talking all these X's and O's and stuff, because that's not what this is about. We want to just garner everybody's interest into sports, sports wagering. I think when I first started, before I met Sean or met Tim, you know, for the most part, I always thought that a bet on a game had to either be on betting the team to win or to lose, and then I kind of knew about point spreads, but there's so much more to that. Um, you can do all these, anything that you can imagine that you can do to wager is pretty much fair play. Like you can even buy points or sell points and it, it's crazy. So it, it's very interesting. Yeah. So many options out there in the gambling world. Uh, we try to make it interesting and fun for you. So you, you guys don't get bored and make it interesting for you guys to listen to. And uh, we're definitely staying committed to you. We're trying to bring you shows as often as we can. We're not going to go anywhere. So, yeah, we appreciate it if you guys help spread the word for us. We have uh, two Facebook pages. We have the Beating the Odds homepage, which is just a a page where we will uh, link the audio to the show on that page. Um, And there will be posts there more probably during the football season and so on and so forth. And then there's a forum, which is just that. It's an open forum where we encourage dialogue. You can sit there and jab at your friends, post something about their team, have them post something about your team. Um, I'm, I've got three dates in front of me. Uh, the NFL Draft, which is April 23rd. The NHL Playoffs, which start April 8th. And the NBA playoffs, which start April 18th. The reason that we're throwing those three dates out there is that we'd like to encourage listeners to give us some things with regard to those dates. If you have a favorite NHL team and they're going to make the playoffs, tell us why. Tell us how far you think they're going to go. Same with the NBA teams. If you've got an NBA team, you're a huge LeBron fan or Maybe you're just like, well, I didn't think the Lakers were going to do it, but then with the death of Kobe, now they're playing like they're going to win one for him. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff we want to encourage so we can discuss it on the following week's show. And then the NFL draft, you know. As far as I'm concerned, the three guys sitting here are just as good as Mel Kuyper or any of the other draft gurus because you're going to just sit there 
and look at people's needs, evaluate how they did, and put them in numeric order. So we're going to run some contests. We'll talk more about that maybe at the end of this show or the next show. But please keep listening. And in the next couple of weeks, we'll we'll get into uh, some of the contests that we're, we're contemplating yeah, starting. Yeah, definitely looking forward to those contests. It's hopefully going to build our group interaction, get you guys participating, and let you guys hopefully win some cool stuff. Uh, we could maybe even talk about doing some kind of a March Madness bracket, and whoever does the best one could be the winner of the contest or something like that. I know you mentioned something about the draft coming up, uh, getting people interacting, posting stuff on there about that. But more details to come. I think it would be a great idea. Uh, I don't know if it was Tim or Drew or you. Someone had mentioned possibly running a contest and letting that person be on the show or contribute to the show. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into a new segment that we're going to be doing. It's going to be our Beating the Odds Poker Pod. We're all very excited about this. Uh, we have some great stuff we're looking forward to announcing. We're basically going to be kind of giving our insight into the poker world, how we play hands, why we play them the way we do. Uh, we have a plethora of different minds in the poker world here right now. Uh, we can all break down a hand very differently. And we're going to basically just tell you why we play things the way we do. Um, help betting technique help out with some tells when we can and basically just kind of deep dive into the game of poker and hopefully help you guys out along the way alright well we're going to start it off uh, we, we've all played together in a Friday night game at the House of Cards uh, shout out to Chris Kaiser. He's been hosting a great game there for many, many years. I'd say at least 10. Myself, I've been playing there for about seven. Bushy and Tim, how long have you guys been playing there? I played... Uh, well, I met Chris through another poker league uh, that was just kind of for fun. He started this league, I want to say, yeah, between like six and ten years ago. I played for about the first three years, and then I took about a three or four year hiatus. And I've been back for about the last three seasons, uh, on and off. Not super consistent, but hope hopefully this season. Yeah, definitely been seeing you more there at the games the last couple of years. And how about you, Tim? I can't remember how long. I know I started, like, I think I started ending, playing at the end of the first season, so I've been playing from basically the start. And um, just to let everybody know, I actually have the most championships in the House of Cards. I have three, and then there's, we got Jim has two, and this other guy, and uh, another good player named Mike B also has two, so hopefully Sean O'Bushy will get on the championship board one of these days. Awesome. That's a goal of mine. Uh, I've gotten second, too many to count. Uh, hopefully one day I'll get that trophy. But we'll give you a brief description of how this game runs, the structure, the buy-in amount. Uh, we play $30 buy-in every week, every Friday. Uh, we actually just switched it to bi-weekly, uh, or bi-monthly, I should say. So we play two games a month now. $30 buy-in, 15-minute blinds. We start with 10,000 chips. Uh, we're not going to go into too much details and get you guys confused, but that's the breakdown of our game. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just give you guys one one interesting hand. Uh, Bushy wanted me to kind of log that we played against uh, each other last Friday. Uh, just to kind of give you guys a little teaser of what we're going to be doing, uh, how we're going to be running this show. And, uh, yeah, basically this is how it went. All right, here's our pre-flop action. We have uh, an interesting player. He's first to act. We'll call him Player A. He limped in. Limping is uh, when you just call the blinds. Uh, the blinds were 75, 150. Um, he limps in, calls the blinds for 150. The next two players fold. It comes to me. I have five diamonds, three of diamonds. I decide to call. I've played with these people many years. I play a wide range of hands. Everybody knows that. I call the 150. To my left, we've got Bushy. 
Uh, he calls as well. He told me after the hand was over that he had seven of clubs, eight of clubs. Uh, folds over to the small blind, who also calls 75. So he's in for 150. And the big blind checks the 150. So we've got a pot total of 750. The, uh, the two blinds, they check. And uh, we go to the flop. The flop comes out. King of diamonds, eight of clubs, five of hearts. And I'm going to pause it right here. What's going through your mind, Bushy? Well, at this point, uh, as you indicated, I had seven, eight clubs, so suited connectors, uh, and I pair the eight. So in this case, uh, I think I'm you know, fairly strong. We still have two more cards to see. The king obviously scares me. So in this position, well, I shouldn't say in this position, it, having these cards, depending on the position I'm in, I probably, the way I would play, would normally check the pair of eights. And you are in the best position on this board because you are last to act out of all the people in the hand. We have five total going to the flop. Uh, the two blinds, the under-the-gun limper, who we call player A. We know how he plays. And then me and then you. So we go to the flop. You hit a pair of eights. I hit a pair of fives. The interesting player, player A, gets checked around to him. And he leads out for 150. Now we're going to stop again and kind of break down this bet. He bets 150. The pot size is 750 if you add up all the players in there. Very low bet. This is the kind of stuff you'll start to notice the more you play poker is bet sizing, the size of pots. and uh, Generally, I think speaking, and Tim can add to this, I, I think the, the normal poker bet, depending on how strong your hand is, um, but with a marginal hand, normally I would think half the pot is about what a typical bet would be. So you're looking for someone to put in th about 375 right in there, somewhere maybe even up to like $500. However, when you get something where someone is betting 150, it's either a complete donkey move where the person doesn't really know what they're doing, or it's a very good tell that this player is trying to be sneaky and he might who knows, this guy might have had pocket kings and he's trying to uh, maximize uh, to try to get other people into the pot, lure them in, I guess, would be. But for experienced pokers, a bet like this is actually going to drive people out of the hand because I think that a lot of times people will catch on to those types of things. Well, from my perspective, sometimes is the problem is is even if you do flop a set of kings there, you don't want to bet 150 because now you, when you put out a bet, you usually want to get some kind of information from players. Sure. So when you bet 150, you're really not getting any kind of information because, like, most likely, like Sean was saying, he's calling with pocket with a pair of fives. If you bet five six hundred, Sean's less likely to call with a pair of fives. So now you have more information because now you bet 150, you really don't get any kind of information, and you. You do have a strong hand of pocket kings, but as we found, you know, later on this hand, that that doesn't always protect your hand. You know what I mean? Sure. Just because if you put out a bet, and a lot of times, I've noticed a lot of new people, newbie players, especially if they raise pre-flop, they think, you know, if I put out a bet, they're going to fold. Like, they think they have to put out a bet. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Just, and let's also say that this guy, he limped in. He didn't raise, so the odds of him having pocket kings... I feel like we've all played with him. Maybe not that likely. That's a good point. And uh, him betting 150, you know, the board did come out king 8-5. It was a rainbow board. Uh, 150 is going to allow straight draws in this hand. You know, 6-7 could have very easily limped in some point. So they're going to call for the 150 as well. So we'll continue the hand breakdown from here. The small blind and the big blind both check to player A, who leads out for 150. I call the 150 with my 5-3 of diamonds. Uh, I've played with this guy many times. I want to see what he does on the turn. Uh, I have a backdoor flush draw. Bushy behind me, he calls with his 7-8, his pair of 8s. And uh, small blind and big blind both fold their hands. 
So from there, we have the pot total up to 1,200, and we're going to the turn. The turn card is the nine of diamonds. I now pick up a flush draw, uh, a backdoor flush, very disguised, sneaky hand. So if I do hit it on the river, uh, a lot of people won't really be guessing I had two diamonds in my hand. Uh, player A then leads out and bets for 200. Uh, he bets 200 into a 1200 chip pot, another very low bet. Uh, very enticing for me to call there, so I do call. I could actually become aggressive and raise here just to see where I stand, but I do have another player behind me, Bushy, which I do not know where he stands. So I just decided to make the call for 200. And Bushy behind me now acts and he makes the call for 200. So we have a pot size now of 1800 and we're now heading to the river. Player A then checks on the river card, which is a four of clubs. So I'm thinking he's betting with nothing this whole way. He has some kind of a draw or he's just seeing where he stands. And uh, this allows me the opportunity now that he's showing weakness to put out a bet and see where I stand. There was no aggression, no raises on the flop and the turn. And now I have a chance to see where I stand. So once he checks to me, I put out a bet size of 1300 into the 1800 chip pot. And I'm just kind of seeing where I stand. Uh, I could take this down and win. And if I call, uh, I took a shot. And if I lose, uh, that's what happens. Sometimes you got to take those chances. So I bet 1300 And Bushy to my left, what are you thinking at this time? Uh, with a bet that size, which is a, a, a definitely a good bet. Um, I'm still with, you know, a mid-pair. My kicker is no good. So... Uh, with only one card to come, I I fold. Yeah, and it definitely looks like a big bet because we've had bet sizes of 150 on the flop and then a bet size of 200 on the turn. So when somebody puts out a bet size of 1,300 on the river, some people may not notice and just assume that that's a big bet, but really, according to the pot size, it's actually not that bad. It's a standard bet there. So Bushy, he folds, and uh, player A... He decides to fold as well, and I take that pot down with my pair of fives. And I know Bushy was wondering what I had after that hand. Uh, he said he folded a pair of eights, and now you finally get to hear what I had. Which, which is, which is good because, uh, believe it or not, uh, just as I hope our listeners do, uh, breaking card hands down like this, which I'm all uh, new to, is actually very informative. Um, you are right uh, in my assumption that the, uh, I believe it was a $1,300 bet or $1,300 in chips. Um, I just saw, because the blinds were 75 and 150 um, I made the mistake of not keeping track of the pot size. And when you're talking about a 75 to 150 blind spread and someone throws out $1,300, um, that does seem like a very significant bet on its face. But when you break it down the way we did, it really was just a little under uh, half the pot. So well done. And uh, that's, you know, it's a learning experience for sure. Yeah, this is just some of the stuff we're going to bring you guys. Uh, this $30 game that we all play at has different levels of skill of the players that are playing there. Uh, I definitely play differently in different buy-in games that I'm in. Uh, I try to adjust accordingly depending on the buy-in and the players I'm playing against. I always try to play my hands differently. And uh, playing in these different tournaments allows me to adjust and uh, play my game style differently in all those games. And I get more comfortable with it when I piece it all together. And I have many different aspects that I'm able to play with depending on the game I am in. So this will just kind of lead us into a segue into Tim. Uh, he can kind of describe what he thinks of the hand if he pleases, or he can just kind of talk about some other games he plays at or a hand breakdown that he has of his own. Yeah, so Tim, did you want to comment or do you want to go into another hand breakdown? I'd actually like to comment. Like, sure. I, I really wish we could have found out what player A's hand was because, like you said, it feels like that person just 
decided to bet like, oh, I'm gonna, I don't have anything, or maybe he had a really weak king or whatever, and he just didn't feel comfortable with his hand. So he's like, oh, I'm gonna put out a bet and see what happens. And sometimes a lot of newbies just assume like, if I put out a bet, that Sean's gonna fold because he has a pair of fives and there's a king on the board. They don't always think. Like I'm Sean guessing, was looking back now, and again, it's much when we're not on this time frame like you are and the nerves and everything else. I'm thinking that he might might have possibly had like Jack 10. I'm thinking that he was, I take that back. Uh, be, yes, Jack 10. Because I'm thinking that he would have needed only a queen for the straight. His betting that little bit, even though we don't agree with it, kind of makes sense there. The nine um, didn't really help him so much. He was looking more for the the queen, and I I think that maybe uh, that that's just my my play on what I think. Now I might be totally off. Maybe he uh, you know had a, a, a different range of hands where he was just hoping to get a high pair. I don't know. Yeah, I actually kind of like your your hand breakdown there, Bushy. Uh, I actually think he could have had ten jack as well. I don't think knowing this player, I feel like he would call if he had a king. Because I've seen some hands he plays, and I feel like he would call with a king in his hand. I feel like a small bet, from what I've seen when people are bluffing, they'll bet it on either draws or just air to see where they stand, or they'll have a really strong hand hoping they get re-raised. So he obviously didn't have a very strong hand here because he folded on the river. And 10-jack makes sense for him to actually continue betting again because he picks up an open-ended straight draw on the turn. Uh, He did limp in under the gun. So 10-jack very easily in his range there. 10-jack or jack-queen. And picking up that straight draw on the turn, I could see why he bet low again and hopes that he gets there on the river, and he didn't. So So what I've learned is that if I can have 30 minutes between each card, I could probably be a pretty good poker player. <laughs> Time yeah. does But not. unfortunately, we don't, we don't get to sit down and do that. But again, this is what we thought would be interesting, not only for us, but for the listeners, and hopefully everybody becomes better card players because of it. Yeah, this was a very early hand in the tournament, and just uh, just one of the breakdowns I have for you. So with that, I'll hand it off to Tim. Well, mine comes in kind of in the same situation. I have the pot is also 75 and 150, and I'm in an early position, and I have a seven of hearts. And in this game... We like to limp in a lot more than than you normally do because we know a lot of the players don't always respect raises as much. So I just like to get in cheaper. I don't want to just in case they have a hand, so they don't like try to raise me off the hand. So I limped in with my ace seven of hearts, and then a player that uh, ended up raising. He is a very very tight passive player. I'd say he's probably like the, one of the tightest players at the whole the total table, which kind of the reason why this hand kind of played out the way it did. And he raises to three hundred, which is a min raise and. Anybody that knows us, especially Sean and I, and I'm assuming with Bushy, like, if I'm limping in, I'm going to call that min-raise in a heartbeat. Because, you know, what are you, what are you doing there when you're making a min-raise? You're like, you know, letting me kind of saying like, hey. Believe it or not, I've, I've actually read poker articles where they say that if you're not in a position to raise, then your best bet is to fold. I mean, so yes, I, I do agree with you there. Yeah, yeah and betting those min-raises, uh, people that are better skill-wise like to come in and see flops that way they can try to outplay them on the flop so getting as cheap as they can is the best move because most likely if you have the skill and advantage on them you will outplay them on the flop and going back to the hand this player like i said is a very tight player so when this player raises it also even though he does make a small min raise it also makes me think okay i think his range is a little bit stronger than what i normally would think if he limped so i'm putting him on like you know Aces through jacks, you know, ace king, ace queen, stuff like that. Because he's a very tight player. He's not going to be raising a lot with king queen. So I call with my everyone else folds. It comes to me, and I call with my a seven. So it ends up being like seven twenty five in the pot. And then the flop comes eight nine ten with two clubs. And not like an okay board for me. Like it is a little bit scary because there's a you know a flush draw. But like I don't put him on having the flush draw, and I also put don't put him on hitting a straight yet because I don't feel like he would you know, raised with a queen jack. Yeah, definitely an interesting board there. And so I checked him because it's like, I don't want to like, you know, bet. And then if he has, you know, maybe like I said, he has, you know, queens, aces, then he raises me off the pot. I have too much equity. So I want to just check it and then kind of just check call him. And then 
he puts out a bet of 700 so he actually put out a good bet there for the, what the pot was with 725 but yeah, one of the pot size bet yeah so it's a good bet but because I know how this player plays and so it helped me decide to call and the reason why I called is because I'm thinking okay I have an ace which potentially could end up you know being the best card if an ace hits I could have top pair not to mention if another club comes I know he's a tight player that he's probably not doesn't have that flush and so I could potentially you know act like I have a flush and bet and so you know so you got this is why we we're telling earlier you want to learn how your players play it helps you determine if you're gonna call fold or raise or what do you want to do yeah you'll definitely be playing the player you want to play against their weaknesses and uh, put your strengths against their weaknesses. You'll pick up on that stuff, you know. You have to play against the player, and that's how you'll become a profitable player. Correct. And so I end up calling, and then the turn ends up, comes up this, you know, six of clubs. So I'm like, overall, that's a good card for me, even though, of course, it brings a flush on board, but I don't put them on the flush. But I'm still going to check because I'm like, you know, that's a scary card, so I'm just going to turn my hand into, like, a check bluff hand, which just means that have a strong enough hand to call down, you know what I mean, to... Basically, if he's bluffing, then I'm going to beat him. And if somehow he ends up having a flush, he has a flush. Yeah, and you're not building the pot at the same time and, and bloating it. So where the river, there's a big pot, and you're going to lose more chips out of it. Correct. Exactly. Do you have any thoughts? Like, would you have called that bushy, or what would you have done in that situation? I like, think I would have played it pretty much the same way. I think that I would have uh, just just called. I don't, I don't think I would have raised. Um, again, you're getting to see uh, a card for what I would call, like, little to no risk, really. Yeah, a little bit. Like, there was a little bit of risk just because of the pot, but, like, this was an early on tournament, so so in that aspect, I can understand, like, we start with 10,000, so if you really think about it, like, this kind of, you know, 700, when you have 10,000 behind you is not really a lot of risk. And, sure. And, yeah, like and, 7% of your stack. Exactly. Right. And then I know if I hit my hand, I have a potential of, you know, potentially having him not think that I hit a straight and I might get some more money from him. If I, I think I think you bring up an, a, a great point, which is knowing your opponent, knowing for, for people that might not know what Tim's describing as a tight player is, is someone that generally is not a bluffer, generally is going to play those premium hands we call them high pocket pairs stuff like that and so for tim to know this someone when as not to go too far back but real quick what sean was saying even when he played uh the three five uh the same thing when you when it doesn't cost you a whole bunch of your stack to see cards and you do hit it's even more advantageous to you because the people at the table are not going to pick up the, your whole cards or what you're holding. They are going to put you on. Uh, it's very easy to put someone on ace face or whatever. You know what I mean? So you're right. In, in this circumstance, uh, that's what I meant by low risk is, is if you hit, um, you've got the potential to rake so much more from this individual because he's not going to put you on the cards that you have. Correct. Yeah, and real quick, adding to that, you don't want to be playing hands like five, three of diamonds. If you're just starting out, you want to have a strong hand base in your your pocket that you're you're sticking strictly to until you get more comfortable. But we won't go into that too much detail. What uh, Sean could do, actually, what what we could do, Sean, for for the people that do, uh, you know, we could just rank uh, the hands just like the top seven hands and just I know when I first started as silly as it sounds I literally I folded probably 85% of the time and then when I had what I would call a premium hand um, you know I would try my best to bet the way I was supposed to um, and I did okay just by doing that I, I enjoyed it because you know I wasn't uh Getting people that, you know, people can be a little hostile sometimes when they're getting beat by, you know, hands that aren't. But it's much different when you, I, I'm not trying to make us sound like experts by any stretch, but if you, if I get beat by you or Tim, and I know we're getting a little off track, but if I get beat by you guys with a 3-5 or whatever, and it's because... You're in the right position, and on the flop, you guys hit two pair or something like that. 
there's no reason for me to get upset. Do you see what I mean? Because that's the way the hand should have been played. However, and I think you've got a hand later on if you want to share it. It's kind of the joke hand. But but yeah, there, there are many instances where people will just play any two cards. And, I, you know, I, I'll be the first one to say that those people, like, you know, I don't, they might win every once in a while, but overall they're not going to be successful. Yeah, when you're first starting out, you want to have a very tight range for your poker hands that you're going to be playing. And as you play over the years, you widen that range, and you get to a point where you can play whatever you, whatever you get dealt. You can make it and turn it into a hand, potentially. But you don't want to do that until you're comfortable and you know the game and the basics and pot odds and stuff that will help build you guys up to that level along the way. So we did get off a little topic there, and we'll go back to Tim so he can finish his hand breakdown. Okay, so like I said, the turn came to six of clubs. And overall, it's a good card for me, but just on the off chance, you know, he he does have a you know club, because if he has ace of clubs, he's not going to fold a hand. He might actually, I don't think he would, but if he ended up having ace with ace of clubs, you never know, he could be potentially raise me. So like I said, I'm turning my hand into a check bluff, so I check, and he decides to check this time too, because he's probably thinking something's up, like why did he call my bet? And then the river comes a six of hearts. So another kind of scary card for me because I'm like, oh, he could potentially have pocket tens in his range, even though that would be like on the low end of his range from my perspective. Correct. So, and I'm not going to bet here because I don't want to get re-raised off this hand because I have a strong enough hand to, you know, call here. That's not worth me, you know, checking and him shipping it. And I'm not going to call a ship there. Like, what am I going to, you know, only beating a bluff compared there because there's a flush out there or a full house. So Yeah, you have showdown value. Exactly. So... That's why I just checked and he bet 700 and then I just called him and then he flipped over pocket queens, which is basically what I thought he had. And so as you start learning how players are, there's a lot of players that will, you know, will play their pocket pairs differently. Some might, you know, min raise it. You know, you start to see, as Sean was saying, different patterns. And I know this player, a lot of people think, oh, I have aces or kings or queens. And so they bet smaller thinking, oh, I want more people on the hand so I can get more money. But the problem is now you let and these small hands get in there, like my A7 of hearts or three five of diamonds get in these kind of hands. And now it's really hard to navigate sometimes because are you really ever going to fold aces pre, you know, after the flop or whenever? You're really going to be folding that hand. Now, yeah. I, just to jump in real quick, you bring up an excellent point. Uh, and piggybacking on what we talked about just real quick. When I first started, um, someone had told me, you know, if I was ever dealt aces, kings, or ace-king, which we refer to as big slick, to automatically go all in. And so I followed that format for for many, many months, probably up to a year. And I was pretty successful doing that. And I think the point you make is just awesome. And I would encourage all beginner players to do that is, you know, it's a lot different when someone's tournament life is on the line um, and they see you push all in. Um, you, if you have the best hand starting off, the percentages say. Now, yes, you will lose occasionally, but like Tim said, if you're trying to slow roll or whatever they call it, you know, limping, where you're just making the minimum bet, you will allow someone that possibly has a pair of jacks to catch a jack or a pair of tens to catch a ten. You, you, you don't want to let people see cards for free. Yeah, that's where you got to realize that you, you'll see people losing with pocket aces and pocket kings and they'll get mad and they'll be screaming. They'll go on tilt and Correct. they'll be like, why are you in this hand? Why are you beating me with that hand? You know, and when you look at it, it's actually their own fault. They're not betting enough. It's, it's, some, it's a flaw in their game. Sure, sometimes somebody's going to call and get lucky against them, but... A lot of times I can go back in my memory bank and think of me cracking aces and it's because they're betting too low or they play the hand poorly and I catch up and when they have a hand like that, they're not going anywhere. So you're going to get their whole stack. And uh, we're going to close the episode here. We don't want to go too far into stuff right now. We kind of gave you guys a teaser on what we're going to be doing in the future shows to come. And uh, we hope you guys like it. We would love your feedback on how you enjoy this podcast, the Poker Pod. Uh, we'd love your input on it. Uh, if you guys have any hands that you would like analyzed and broken down or you're not sure what to do in certain situations, please post them on the, the Beating the Odds forum. 
Uh, we'll go through there and we'll answer them accordingly on how we would each play the hand, uh, a good profitable way to play the hand, uh, we would play it, and uh, yeah, just kind of go from there. We kind of want to build our community up and keep this going. Sounds good. I, as always, thank both of you for, you know, cutting, you know, after work, come over here, you know, donating your time and so on and so forth. I love doing this stuff. I learn every time we get together, which is great. And uh, until next time, uh, I'm going to sign off. And and uh, Tim, why don't you take us out of here? I will real quick say there are, again are two Facebook posts. Uh, there's the um, pages, excuse me. There's the Facebook uh, Beating the Odds. And then there's the Beating the Odds forum. We have a Twitter account. It's at Beating the Odds 3, the number 3, on uh, no spaces. And so tweet at us, comment on the page, ask questions. Um, there's books out there. Uh, we could recommend books. Um, hopefully you're getting very basic. We're Hopefully we're speaking very basic. We're trying to keep it as basic as possible so that the beginners find interest and don't lose it. And before we go any further, actually, just so the listeners know, we should kind of give a breakdown of, like, our experience, you know. Uh, if we've won tournaments or if we've had any caches, some events we've played in, just so our listener base kind of knows what kind of advice they're they're getting and, like, skill level-wise on, like, what they're listening to. So uh, with that, Tim, what, what kind of events have you played? Uh, how much do you think you've won over the years playing poker? I've probably won at least about 2,000, so nothing major, but I usually don't play a lot of big games. So, like, I've done Vegas a lot of times, but I have not been as successful. Like, I'm not going to go into any, like, bad beats or anything like that because we all know everybody has them. But for some reason, just I just never do good at Vegas. I feel like I play, you know, good, maybe not as good because, you know, when you're going to Vegas or somewhere else, you don't know the players. So, for right now, I, I think I'm about, you know, about up two grand or so. I have a, you know, poker tracker that I can do. So, that's another good thing for... For beginning players, you know, get some kind of app on your phone that you can put in there and be like, hey, you know, I have a $30 buy-in and then I won $100. So that way it kind of keeps track to say, hey, I'm a profitable player or I'm not a profitable player. So you start to see where the gaps in your game are. So that's some of my advice to all you guys. You think you're only up two grand in your life? Or you think, I feel like you've won 500 this weekend. I feel like you've got to be up more than that from my personal experience. Championships? Come on, you're over True, two. but I, you got to remember when I was back in the day, I've been playing. Tim, like the IRS years. is not listening. <laughs> <laughs> we know it's more than 2,000. Well, I've played with Tim many years. Uh, he's a great player. Uh, he's profitable. He puts his money in in the right spots. Uh, Bushy, how long have you been playing? And what's I've probably now? been playing poker now since it's probably going on about fifteen years. Um, like Tim, I don't play uh, in a lot of high limit buy-ins. Um, I'm probably a little bit better than like an average home game player. Um, like a casual There's a casual player i i do you know not to sound conceited i do feel that i'm a pretty skilled card player i know the ins and outs of it um i'm not good enough to make a career out of it by any stretch but at the same time i i think as just a bit of advice for people that are listening or thinking about getting into it um if you are going to play for money the best thing that you can do is try not to start playing. I would say try not start. Don't start playing cash games and don't play very low limit games. I know that sounds contradictory, but if you play low limit games at your local casino or wherever, you will have people that come in with bigger bankrolls. And basically you're not going to really be able to uh, uh, evaluate your skill against other players because if the blinds are so low or whatever that someone can raise $50 or $60 when you've bought in for only $100, you know, any doubt that you have in mind, your mind is probably going to lead to a fold in that situation. So you're not going to be able to obtain really good knowledge. 
So what I did was I played a lot of home games. I played at the House of Cards. And then as I got my skill set a little more rounded, uh, then I wasn't afraid to go out to the casinos, uh, you know, get into some 3-6, some 2-4 games. I played a few tournaments where, um, I don't know, overall career-wise, I'm probably, I don't know, around four or $5,000 total. I did was able to win uh, two like one-day tournaments. They weren't like multi-day tournaments like uh, you've been in, but there was, I think, one I cashed for like 1100 and another one was like $600. So, I, I mean, there, there is money to be made, and those were both like $50 buy-ins. But... You know, it, it's a process. That's what people have to realize. It's you guys both uh, verbalized it very well. It's it's you know you're not going to go out and be able to hit uh, Mario Mariano Rivera fastball the moment you pick up a bat. But you know, after years and years and years, you might be able to make contact with the ball or something every once in a while. Yeah, definitely. After years of playing, you're going to pick up on people's tells, and you're going to be a better player overall. Um, sounds like. You like to do this more than casual, Bushy, and you make a pretty good return. Not Nothing to live off of, but it's like a little side job. It you know? is, it's it's fun. a nice supplement. You like yes. to do it for fun, casually, and like to make a little money. Tim, you like to do it kind of like, like a side job as well. I'd say you're pretty competitive, and you, you try to turn this into like a second job if you could. Nothing to live off of. I'd like to try to turn it into a career one day too, but... I'm still just slowly playing. Uh, I like to use it as like a secondary job as well. Just uh, to just to chime in, and I, I don't mean to cut you off, but one of the things I think we would all agree to, fellas, is that it, it, I, you can you you need to challenge yourself too, right? Would we all agree? You, you're going to be. It's nice to be the the kingpin of your group of friends or whatever, but that gets old really fast too because you're if you're not challenging your for, I'll, I'll be the first one to say on the podcast that, you know, uh, against Tim or against Sean, I feel less confident as a card player than I do against the player A that you mentioned or some of these other players. It There's really no way to self-evaluate yourself if you're not willing to take risks. And that's what it took for me to finally go down to the casino, you know, was... Hey, man, I'm scared what these guys are just going to take my... You know, we've all seen rounders. Oh, if you don't know who the, the, the fish, is, fish is, then it's you, you know. And and then I finally, this last couple of years, you know, I started playing events in Vegas and in Laughlin. And it's... It really, they're, they're just people. And, and, you know, yeah, some days you're going to get your ass handed to you. But other days you're going to really... And nothing feels better than when you play a hand the way you diagrammed it up in your head and everything goes and then at the end he turns over the cards and the cards that he had were the cards you thought not a better feeling we all you know we always everybody remembers their classic bad beats of course but it's nice to remember those really good ones where you know you were like you know what i, I played that hand really well yeah it's definitely a great feeling when your uh your gut is right and uh, the skills you've learned over the years come into play and ends up being the right thing. Um, and we've introduced Tim and Bushy's their background for poker. Uh, I'll kind of give mine. I've been playing since about 2003, 2004. And uh, I've been playing since like the poker boom, you know, with Chris Moneymaker. And played online for a little bit. Uh, was kind of casual like like everybody else for many years. I never played in any of the big stuff. It was just home games. And I'd say the last three years or so, I've kind of been playing a little more, uh, like bigger buy-ins. I played at the World Series of Poker twice now. Uh, I like to play state tournaments now. Uh, I play at the Arizona State Championship. And uh, I'd say it's since I've improved my buy-in amounts, I've seen a bigger return on my money. Before it was kind of like a like a casual thing, a side job, win, you know, lose, but over time you're winning. And uh, I've done that. And last couple of years I've hit a couple of big tournament caches, which I'm pretty happy about. I don't want to like toot my horn, but we're just giving background here. Yeah. And uh, played a casino at the Del Sol. It was a 200 person tournament. 
Uh, we chopped it five ways. We got 7,100 apiece. And within the year, played at the World Series and played the Big 50. It was the first one they've had for that. And very huge tournament field. It was about 29,000 players. I got down to 433rd place and had a decent score there. And it definitely helped open my eyes to get more experience in those tournaments. Uh, it makes me know that I still have to improve my game in the years to come. But you see things that are happening and uh, you just want to kind of capitalize on it and make yourself a better player. I just wanted to, you know, before we sign off here, again, just ask you guys for your opinion because I, I do value it. Do you guys, I, you brought up a good point as well, and I, I think you kind of segued with what I was saying is, don't you guys feel that even though the, the intimidation factors there or whatever, that as you rise up the level in stakes... So if you're going from a, a weekend house game at your buddy's house for $20 or you're playing nickel-dime quarter poker like we all did as a kid, and then all of a sudden now, you know, you're buying in. For me, the most I've ever bought in was 150 bucks. I know you've done, a, I think, a 1500 or I don't know if you've gone even more than that, but there's some bigger buy-ins. For the most part, I, would you guys agree that the higher the buy-in, Sometimes it's the easier it is to play because you've kind of weeded out those guys that are playing the the hands that really shouldn't be played. The stuff that we talked about is more likely to happen because the players are all kind of more on that same ethical poker, if you want to call it. I don't know if ethics is the right, but you know what I mean? Yeah, you definitely see a tighter field and bigger buy-in tournaments. Uh, you could raise a lot more and get away with it, and people will fold their hands. You could raise with a lot less in your hand than you could. But you'll occasionally run into those players where $1,000 is nothing to them, and they'll still play wild. Uh, but you definitely see way less in bigger fields. So it's not, I, I think the point I was just trying to get across, it's not as intimidating as people would, would think. It's a little bit nerve-wracking to yourself, but once you do it, pretty easy <laughs> once you start to learn their players because as you'll attest to the longer you play the more you get like a gut feeling sure and so when you get that gut feeling it's kind of like saying i've seen this before somewhere maybe not of course with that player there but so sometimes you might make a call you would never ever make because somehow you have a gut feeling that that person's bluffing or maybe you have a gut feeling they have a strong hand and so you fold you know a strong hand because you just there's something there that makes you think they have a strong yeah. hand so that's kind of what helps you sometimes as you go up in the stakes but yeah, we kind of steered off topic here. Uh, there's plenty to talk about about poker, and we're not going to cram it all into this episode. But we hope you guys enjoy what we provided you and gave you guys some of our poker background. And uh, with that, we're officially going to head out of this episode now. All right. You got to lead us out with your famous catchphrase, Mr. Sean. All right, everybody. Remember to game responsibly. <laughs>